Well, a very good evening and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are live with you for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible, not our answers or opinions, but uh, answers straight from the Bible as the Lord helps us to do that. That is what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. So if you have questions on your heart and mind, we only ask that they're honest questions that are looking for an answer straight from the Word. We are happy to be here to navigate that and find those answers with you. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I was a little under the weather over the weekend, but feeling uh, ship-shaped today. So glad to be back with you and with me. Were you actually sick or is it your sinuses? Shh, shh, no. <laughs> Tell <laughs> well, me on the air. Right I felt now. <laughs> sick. <laughs> I think it was maybe allergies and then yeah. sinuses blowing up. Some felt like all of Tucson tried to blow <clears> up my nostrils. Well, we did but, have uh, a radical temperature change. I mean, yeah. it went from... Ow, it's still hot to, it was chilly last night. Yeah. We get down in the 40s. Yes. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm ecstatic, but still. I like it too. wreak havoc on those who I have like allergies. But for whatever reason, my sinuses were not happy <clears throat> and nor was I, but I'm feeling much better today. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Well, yeah. thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And with me today is Pastor Peter Martin in a different seat to usual. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm all discombobulated he's because the, I'm <laughs> in the wrong he's seat. In the beam, he's in the Bema seat now. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not very good for the, the OCD amongst us. Um, I wanted to, to, to plug you guys a little bit. Um, let me bring this up here. Pastor Peter Martin is an author, and uh, his books are available on Amazon. Here's the first book that he, that he wrote, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love. Bring it up here. Mostly I just want to show this technology for those of you watching I didn't know we could do this. Oh, yeah, well, cool. it's kind of a new thing. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of flexing right now, as they say. You've always as been the able kids to do say. this. <laughs> That's as the kids say, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Rooted, Rooted in Sin and Rescued by Love by Peter Martin, a guide to better understanding and combating sin through the grace and love of God. That was his first book that he released and also available on Amazon, Fellowship of Suffering, Finding Healing from Trauma Through the Power of Community. There it is. It tends to open to a preview, <coughs> but those are Peter's books. I, I hear on good authority that he is working on his Third, uh, when do we expect to see that uh, being released into the wild? Before 2030. Before 2030. Oh, good. <laughs> I might still be alive. <laughs> you never he's know. got another baby coming. So yeah. That's true. That kind of slows down. Now he's going to have both hands full. <laughs> yes. A daughter absolutely. and is it public or should I? Oh, no, no, no. Son, yeah. We're okay. It's, yeah. Well, uh, I knew that. I just didn't want to spill yeah, the beans. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to burn a house down with some exploding balloons <laughs> or anything like that. Like it's the customary apparently now to yeah. do that, to the, the burn the forest down yeah. with the Ren Gender Reveal Party. Yeah, right. And actually for my third book, <laughs> I, I wanted both of you guys to help me with it because it's about aesthetics and Christian view of beauty. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Put because you on the spot here. <laughs> that that right reminds now. me that <laughs> uh, so I have beautiful. I have the current manuscript in my inbox to review and see what I could uh, add. Yeah, I will have to see how beautiful <laughs> it is <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah, it's not very beautiful. If it's, very good. If it's well written and has lots of beauty in it, then I will say this is a pretty this is a pretty manuscript. If it's not, okay. you will overlook at it and then <laughs> yeah. just move on. Yeah. But in all seriousness, wonderful books. Uh, Peter is a former Marine. Is that the right way to say it? A former Marine and yeah. brings a lot I'm of okay his... with it. Some Marines aren't. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's what aren't I'm you always a Marine, but you're just not in service? I'm, I'm not a Marine. <laughs> 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 I am out of the Marines for a reason. We're going to move on from that before we get in, <laughs> before we get in trouble. Hot water. But thank you for your service and thank you for your books as well, which are very mm -hmm. helpful. So do... Uh, check those out on Amazon. Also with us, Adrian Van Vactor. Thank you for being host yesterday. You did a great job, but today you are buttons. in a guest seat. And I also wanted <clears> to plug <throat> your book. Uh, mm. We mentioned it the other day on yeah. Pastor Scott did, Unmasking the Masquerade. Um, mm. Adrian is a, a, an illusionist and uses his 
gifting to uh, to share the gospel and has done around <clears throat> the world. You can get it at a discount though if you go to faithsearch.org. We sell oh, okay. directly. Um, Amazon's great, but uh, they take a lot. Oh, do they? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> but yeah. if you want to pick up a copy, yeah, just go to our website faithsearch.org. You can order it straight from our bookstore. Faithsearch.org. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not uh, sponsored by Amazon at all, but I, just, <laughs> I personally use it way more than I should. So. Yeah, and I'm just one of the co-authors. I wrote the last third of the book. It's Three Illusionists Investigate Deception, Fear, and the Supernatural. The idea mm. that if you're an expert in the art of deception, <clears throat> how how would you analyze UFO phenomena? What would you think about ghost hunters and psychics and mm. Ouija boards and that entire world of phenomena, what we call the paranormal. Yeah. And since we know that there's usually an Oz behind the curtain, the question is, is there always a curtain? Mm. Is it possible to look back and go, aha? And mm. that's kind of what the book's about. And then we conclude the book by asking the question, what if we were to look behind the curtain on the life of Jesus? Mm. Is there a curtain and is there a guy, a wizard pushing buttons in the background deceiving right. us? And yeah. that's more your part of the book, right? That's actually yeah. what I wrote. Yeah. The, Jesus, myth, magician, or Messiah. Yeah, very good. Well, with Halloween coming up, might be a great gift for people yeah, or just yeah. to check out yourself, you know. Yeah, because yeah. it's not a Christian book. The whole first half is just, if you have a background or a, a, an enjoyment of Wicca or, you know, you're into spirituality, new age, and not a, not a religious person, um, it's a very fascinating book. Both mm. secular and non-secular people have really got out of it. They may not agree with my conclusions that Jesus is the Messiah, but they certainly, it was thought-provoking for them. So Yeah, very good. <clears throat> very good indeed. Well, let me know how you can, let let me let you know, let, how much I'm trying to say. I'm going to tell you. Know something. I'm going to let you know. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now how you can be a part of our broadcast today. Obviously, if you're hearing us or seeing us, you've already found a way. But uh, regardless, we're going to go over those things. A <laughs> reason for hope. It's going to be a giggly show, I can I can tell already. We shouldn't put the three of us We together. should not put this as a bad combination, <laughs> indeed. Uh, a Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian uh, Fellowship of Tucson. So you can find us at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab, and you can watch us live there. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You'll find us there as well. We have an app. You can join us on a mobile device or even on Roku and Apple TV. So go to your app store. And uh, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship there as well. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope. Look for A Reason for Hope, the channel there on YouTube. We are live there as well. So send in your questions through the chat functions on any of those platforms. Um, also, our email address, if you want to do it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> it's funny how email is old-fashioned. I'm going <laughs> to pretend it is. It's questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out with letters, at gmail. Dot com. You can send us your questions there through email. If you'd like to follow Pastor Scott, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship on Twitter, you can at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. Yeah, I was going to make fun of you a little that. bit there because he said all spelt out with letters. So I'm like, every word is spelt out with letters. <laughs> <laughs> but they may think it's questions for the number four. Yeah. That's why I say, you know what all I mean. Letters, you know yeah. what I'm trying to say, don't you? Shh, quiet. And you. definitely follow Scott's Twitter feed. Um, it's 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 not only entertaining, but it's also very insightful. He is the brains. He, I, I, he's Pastor Megamind. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you're afraid of Twitter... Like so many of us are, uh, follow Scott because he's witty and it's again very insightful. He's on, and I, I don't think many of us here at CCF know how 
frequent he posts on Twitter. So. Well, I never right. go on Twitter, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know. You know. I created an account years ago, and I've tweeted like five times. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on Twitter, I but I read and I don't post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is a great way, Twitter or, or indeed our email address, questions for hope, all spelled out with letters at gmail.com. <laughs> AKA a, every word ever. <laughs> is a great way to um, uh, keep in touch with us, even when we're off air, of course, around the clock. So I will be uh, fielding those questions as they come on in today on all those platforms. So do be part of the broadcast, send us your questions. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, but do consider when you're not on your drive time, joining us on one of those live platforms. So with all that being said, Adrian, would you like to pray for us, pray for the show as we delve into what the Lord has for us? I'd be honored to. Great. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for technology that we can communicate and sit in a room together and then invite others to join with us. Give us wisdom as we tackle people's questions and help us to be uh, just very... um, in our attitudes humble as we approach your word, your your perfect word, as we uh, attempt to explain and reveal what uh, what your word says to us today in 2022. Mm-hmm. In Jesus' name, mm-hmm. amen. Amen. So before we jump into to questions as they come in, <clears throat> today is Tuesday, and it's Apologetics Tuesday. You guys have a tradition of doing that. Is there something on your heart you guys would like to share and discuss today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a couple weeks ago, the Parkland City Massacre shooter was put on trial and was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, For a lot of the families that were hoping for the death penalty, this was a blow, and it brought up a lot of controversy, and that is, should Christians be pro-death penalty? Should we be for it? Should we support it Uh, or not? And does that conflict with our pro-life views, right? So if we're pro-life, when it comes to the unborn, is it a contradiction to be for the death penalty. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to go back and forth on. And I'm going to play the devil's advocate. <laughs> Hopefully I'll do a decent job. Can you job. say that phrase on this show? I know. Uh, I'm not advocating for the devil, but I'm, gonna, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to point out any recalcitrant facts in his arguments from Scripture and both you know, philosophically with you know, moral theories and so on, and mm-hmm. assuming... You're going to do that? <laughs> Absolutely, because we, we kind of have to. So uh, a lot of people who are going to argue for the death penalty biblically, they're going to point to the usages of the death penalty within the Old Covenant. The problem is, is that that's not exactly applicable for us today for multiple reasons. Uh, number one is that we're prior to the law. We are living in grace. We're not under the law. Mm-hmm. And even though we inform a lot of mor- our morality from the law, we're not <clears throat> underneath it anymore. Mm-hmm. Number two, we don't have what's called a Christian nation. So Israel that received the governmental structure from God on Sinai was a nation, right? They were able to implement national governance over the people, and God informed what that was to look like. Mm-hmm. We don't have a Christian nation like that. We have nations that are composed of Christians. We might even have laws and governances that are informed by Christianity, but we do not have a Christian nation in the same way that Israel is a Jewish nation. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, that's a valid point, but... Wasn't the command in Genesis prior to the giving of the law that if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed? That's actually a big passage I was going to go to. (laughs) And then in in Romans, Paul argues that the government bears the sword, the death penalty, for the punishment of evil. And this is after, during the age of, the beginning of the age of grace. So he's not, 
he's talking about a secular government saying that God instituted right. the sword for the punishment of evil. So couldn't a Christian argue, at least from a non-theocratic state, non-law <clears throat> of Israel view, that ethically the principles or the ethics for capital's punishment are present? Right. Right, and that would be a very strong argument for that. Some some people would argue against it, and they would say, well, in the Noahic Covenant, you have an instance in which man is just escaped from the flood. There's a very dicey territory, to say the least. Uh, you're dealing with civilization being reproduced from the ground up, and therefore any breaks in civilization would be catastrophic. And so giving Noah the capacity to be able to institute the death penalty within the civilization he was starting to create was really important. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, he didn't have the capacity to create what we would call correctional facilities, right? So in order to have prisons, what we understand as prisons, that's a huge undertaking. I think we kind of take it for granted because it's just been a part of our civilization for so long. But to actually compile, right, to build up a building or numerous buildings in our case that are going to be able to house dangerous criminals, to be able to have the infrastructure in place to hire people that are there to watch them and to hopefully create a system that will allow them to leave in a way where they paid the debt to society and they're going to be able to be a part of society, that takes a lot. And so it's very arguable that the reason why God gave this to Noah, the reason why God allowed it in the Old Covenant was because of the circumstances and not because it's something that God actually wanted. Uh, That's interesting. I'm going to argue against that, but uh, that is something that various Christians, very good, strong Christians would say. Uh, Same with the Romans 13 passage. Once again, you're talking about an antagonistic government that was uh, ruled over by pagans. And what Paul might be saying is that God has given the capacity for man to shed blood, going off the what he said, Noah in Genesis chapter 9, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's what governments ought to do. So it's not a prescription, but rather just an observation that the government does in fact bear the sword for punishing evil and just don't do evil. Right, and that it could even have some efficacious qualities to it, meaning that it could actually be beneficial. But the question is, is is that what we should be doing, right? So in modern civilization where we do have the infrastructure set up for prisons, should it be that we give people the rest of their lives to come to knowledge of the truth in God and to prolong their lives so that they could live it out in a state of being where they're not harming anybody, but still able to have Mm -hmm. their lives free from the death penalty. Is that something we should fight for? Another argumentation that people would uh, make in opposition to the death penalty would be not only that life itself is sacred and therefore we should fight for it no matter what, but they would also say that there's a huge psychological toll on those who who would have to administer the death penalty, Mm. right? So if I have someone act as an executioner, even if it's through lethal injection today, that still has a psychological effect that they know that they took another person's life whether that person is guilty or not, right? So any soldier, no matter how noble their mm-hmm. cause, will tell you that there is a psychological toll to taking life. So should we allow someone to undergo that in the name of the death penalty? I don't know how many nights I was woken up by my dad screaming, mm. you know, and yelling, you know, I murdered people because yeah. he was a Vietnam veteran and he killed a lot of people. Yeah. He was part of that air cavalry, you know, those guys that lived on an average 14 minutes after mm. they landed on the ground and... uh he had a purple heart and he was injured, but um, <clears throat> he uh, um, seemed like a pretty cold, calculated person at times. Mm. And yet his soul was terrorized by the fact that he seemingly in defense of his fellow uh, soldiers killed people. Right, right. 
So I'm going to try to address these as best as I can. Uh, the first th point that I would like to distinguish between is when people say, is it possible to be pro-life in one sense and to also be for the death penalty? And the answer is yes. When we say that we're pro-life, what we mean is that we believe that all life has the potential to be protected by government, meaning that all life is inherently good because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore it ought to be protected. However, in order to protect greater quantities of life, if I understand that somebody has either taken life or greatly inflicted their will on other people's lives to a huge and horrendous event uh, or effect, is it right for me to take their life in order to preserve other people's lives, right? Uh, that is the question that is on hand. Not, so isn't there two <clears throat> tracks to that? One is the punishment for taking life, and the other mm -hmm. one is to prevent the further taking of life. Exactly. So this is two branches of phil philosophy called consequentialism and retributionaryism. So uh, in retributionism, you have the idea that does the punishment fit the crime? Consequentialism is what is the effect of the policy and how does it not only impact the person that it's implemented upon, but the society at large. Right? So in other words, like in Singapore, they have such strict, swift correction for the, yeah. I mean, chewing gum yeah. and spitting it on the sidewalk is a punishable offense. I've been there a few times and I just remember being warned, don't spit on the sidewalk. They're really into cleanliness and other countries where kids get their hands chopped off for stealing. You know, mm -hmm. you have real severe punishment. And then apparently they'll have very, very low crime rates, very low stealing, you know, murder, so on and so forth, because the consequences are too great. It's not worth it. Just don't commit these crimes. Right. No, absolutely. So there is a consequentialist argument that when you make the punishment for the crime, right? In other words, people inherently make calculations when they look at what penalties are available for particular crimes, and they actually base a lot of their morality on that. Now, should we? That's, that's the question. Mm -hmm. From a Christian perspective, we shouldn't, right? We should not base our morality based on the penalties that are instituted by the government. However, that is a natural human inclination, and that is why God oftentimes judges the governance as a man, right? So he looks at the way that governments treat people and he argues, right, uh, a really notable example, this is in the book of Hosea, he argues that because the penalties were re restrained from people, that those committing crimes are less accountable for their actions. It doesn't mean they're completely off the hook, but they're less accountable for their actions because it's the government's job to actually give the heart of God, to actually show how God sees various crimes and his heart towards them in order to act as a deterrent from the continuation of those crimes. So for instance, if society says it's wrong to, uh, let me give a modern day example. So in our, on the books, child pornography is wrong. However, how is it penalized within our country? Well, it's kind of all over the it's place. It's a state to state very It's a state to state it? issue, right? Some states are very lenient, some states are very strict, but even the strict ones, it's very difficult to nail down exactly how they look at it. They don't really take into account a lot of the nuances. Right? Is there a difference between a guy who's watching 16-year-old girls versus a guy who's watching five-year-olds? Absolutely. But the state doesn't really take, I mean, they, they're supposed to, but they don't. They don't. And don't they treat the those who traffic in the creation of versus right. the those who are just in possession of the digital final product that these other people create? Yeah. Do they treat those differently? I'm not actually aware of They, they should, yeah. It depends on the state. But in most cases- Like the cases, drug dealer versus the drug addict? Absolutely. So people producing the pornography are discriminated against higher than- 
than they were. But there was a small time, this kind of gets off topic, but there was a small time in which they were having a lot of difficulty with it because people were selling themselves. So in other words, when smartphones and social media came mm. out, you had a huge problem with 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds right, yeah. taking pictures of themselves and didn't kids start getting prosecuted? They as started getting prosecuted. Sex offenders, even because, though they were the ones. Yeah, being... if I'm if I'm a stupid sixteen year old kid and I have sex with my girlfriend and videotape it, and then I distribute that, I've just distributed child pornography, hmm. right? So it became a big problem. But my whole point in bringing that up is not to get into huge <laughs> topic of pornography. But my yeah. whole point of bringing that up is you can actually see that if people don't view particular things as being crimes, right? So if you look at states that are really soft on this type of behavior, like California, you see an uptick in that type of behavior. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people tend to gauge how bad they see behavior based on how the state treats it. So if the state is lenient to it, they tend to promulgate it more. When the state is harsh on it, mm -hmm. they tend to take it more seriously. In sad fact, but the United States is, from the last I heard, was the number one consumer of child trafficking child sex trafficking. I don't know about child pornography, but the number one consumer of of the abuse of young kids, girls and boys, as a result of the trafficking, the sex trafficking part of it, but we're the number one consumers mm. um, from, um, oh gosh, I remember, can't remember the organization, uh, ex-FBI guy or something like that. And and now he goes and goes undercover and he frees kids. Mm. And he cited that stat. I'll have to remember his name, but... Uh, uh, really, really, I was in tears at the stories that he told. Yeah. And so, well, one can make the argument that obviously life in prison is a really severe punishment, and it is. Death is obviously, the death penalty is obviously a more severe punishment. And the question is, is are there certain crimes in which that penalty matches the crime, right? Where you could actually look at it and say, that's proportionate. That mm -hmm. is a proportionate response considering what this person did. But wouldn't some argue <clears throat> when you're a especially child sex offenses, aren't those the most hated and punished individuals in prison? Depends on what wouldn't, prison you go to. So actually... I mean, if you were in a prison where that's frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So wouldn't that be a worse punishment than just not existing anymore? Right. So actually, I, uh, I visited somebody in Red Rock Prison down here in Tucson, Arizona. And Red Rock Prison is for sex offenders. Now, the reason why they have a separate prison for sex offenders is because if they went into general population, they would be killed. Uh, no question about it. So it's not just you're going to get abused in right. various ways. You will die. Yeah. You, they, they it is the death you. penalty. It is the death penalty. It is, it is a jury by peers in the most serious way possible. So uh, they've done tests on this. If you put a sex offender, even if someone who is not guilty of child molestation they will consider you a child. They, they call them chomos in the general pop population. They will kill you. So they, wow. they actually have separate prison facilities for sex offenders for that reason. Now, if you go to a sex offender prison, a lot of the population is going to be accused of crimes against minors. And that's allowable, right? So they're not. But again, that was a question that people were asking of, is it more gracious for the state to administer some sanctioned death penalty than for the general population to take matters into their own hands, right? So that was another question. But it is ironic, though, that hardened criminals have a line that even society is willing to be more lenient on. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and that should definitely reflect in our society because uh, there was a time where everybody in society would agree with that, right? Crimes against minors would be something that would mm -hmm. definitely garner the death penalty. 
Uh, we became more lenient to that, especially sexual crimes against minors were things that most people in society would say, yeah, if anything merits the death penalty, it should be that, mm. right? To, to take someone's innocence at that stage of life, if anything garners the death penalty, it's that, right? I, I would even contend I see that as a worse crime than killing another grown adult, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if I am angry at somebody and I get into a fight with them and I murder them, whether it's premeditated or not, I see that as a lesser crime than intentionally violating the innocence and sanctity of a child, mm. right? But that's just my personal moral compass, right? Some people would disagree with that. But regardless of how you look at it, the very the question you have to ask is, are there crimes that would merit the death penalty where that, that punishment would fit the behavior that <clears throat> you're doing? I always try to go at it from a retributionary perspective. The reason why is because I think that that's biblically what we see, right? In other words, you don't see a consequentialist argument for justice made anywhere within the scriptures. Uh, everything that you see, if you read the law, if you read Genesis, right, everything is about does the punishment fit the crime? Hmm. Is what the state giving fitting of what the person did? So the problem. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. The problem with going too far down the consequentialist argument is, uh, and C.S. Lewis makes a good point about this within his book. Uh, that hideous strength where he sees a dystopian culture. Uh, so it's a, a fiction book, but uh, one of the main people within his dystopian culture is a consequentialist woman. And she argues she's a sadist. She likes torturing people. She argues that she likes the consequentialist argument because she said, once you can instill in people's minds, not what does the punishment deserve, but what would be necessary to remedy it, you can get away with anything. So in wow. other words, if the state can start making arguments that this would <clears throat> remedy that kind of behavior. She said you could technically get away with any type of evil and atrocity against the inmates. Isn't that what mob justice is all about? A consequentialist approach, not retribution or justice. Yeah. But when you have mob justice, the the punishment never fits the crime. Exactly. It's always just anger and this is the consequences for crossing the line. We're gonna exactly. get you. And I mean, about, is that accurate or, or no, they, is it retributive if it's a, a mob kind of a justice well, form? Mob justice is not, by definition, it's not retributionary because it's vengeance. It's mm -hmm. I'm doing what I feel like is best, not what is actually fitting. That's why one of the main commandments in the Old Testament is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, some people quote that and they're like, ah, you know, this is why the Bible is so antiquated and evil. It says that if you, you know, hit someone in the eye, they should hit you right back in the eye. And that, uh, you know, the famous quote from Gandhi, an eye for an eye wakes the world blind, right? If it's all just about getting even, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You have to understand that was written to the judges of the day. And what he's saying is whatever punishment you give, it has to fit the crime. He's not advocating for vengeance-based mob culture. So it's taken out of context largely when people point to that as an argument against Christianity or the Bible biblical as a justice. biblical justice. Yeah. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and what infuriates me a lot about modern culture is that most people who argue about justice, they don't argue from a retributionary mindset. They argue from consequentialism. Mm -hmm. What would be best for the society and culture as a whole, as opposed to what does this crime deserve? Uh, interesting movie that came out about 20, 30 years ago had Dustin Hoffman and Susan Sarandon. Mm -hmm. It's called Dead Man Walking. Yeah. And in it, you have a real-life depiction <clears throat> of a Christian woman who goes in to see uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, who I believe raped and murdered a little girl. And again, this is based on a real story. Wasn't it Sean Penn? Uh, Sean Penn, you're right. Yeah. Not Dustin Hoffman, you're correct. And so she goes in to see him, and the family 
of the girl comes and talks to the nun and says, what are you doing talking to this guy? And she says, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for everybody and that everybody has access to his gospel. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to share the, the gospel with him. And they're like, yeah, but you're trying to get him out of the death penalty. And she says, well, we're all God's children. We all have a, t- a chance at redemption. No one should be killed. And she goes on this thing and they mm-hmm. said, well, you've never asked us what we would want. What would be fitting for that man taking our daughter's life? Now, is there a difference between, is that retribution or is that consequential? If, if say, what we want, what we what we feel is deserved, or what is actually objectively justice. Now, the family in that scene is making the argument that this person irrevocably stole our daughter from us. And what would be more fitting a punishment for him than for his life to be mm. taken from him? Gotcha. That's the argument that they're making. That it should, whether mm. justice realizes it, they're making the argument that the, this punishment would fit his crime. Mm. Her argument is, well, I'm looking at this person, I'm looking at his background, I'm looking at what would be best for him, and they're saying that's all well and good, but you're not answering the question of what punishment should fit his crime, not what should be best for him. When you have a culture that becomes massively consequentialist, a big problem with that is they start to think more about the criminal element than they think about the people who are being victimized, right? So retributionary justice thinks more about what has happened to the victim and what is necessary to make them whole. Consequentialist justice is more interested in why did that person commit the crime and how could we how could we rehabilitate them? That's what we call them correctional facilities now. Mm. They're not for retributionary justice. Now, another bad thing that happens in cultures that start thinking this way, not only can it justify a lot of evil, which we saw in Stalinistic regimes and Maoist regimes, right, where you have the state starting to inflict tortures on people to, quote unquote, rehabilitate them, which is really bad and tragic. You look into that on your own time. Not only does it actually allow for much more crimes against humanity, but it also gives the mindset of the criminals thinking, why am I doing this? I'm actually a greater victim here. So in other words, whatever crime I commit is because a crime was committed against me. The fact that they need to be rehabilitated means they were somehow... Victimized. Uh, damaged by something externally changeable Therefore, the it's place. not really my fault. And how mm. many people going to prison and arguing for people going to prison that you hear today making that very argument? They didn't actually do something wrong. Something wrong was done to them. And we need to figure out why that thing was done wrong, and we need to adjust it. And many people in the church, I make this argument all the time, as a pastor, it really infuriates me how a lot of even pastoral justice, right, when the church is implementing uh, types of biblical, uh, what we would call church discipline, they think so much about, well, this happened in this person's life, and what should we think about this, and what should we think about that, that they don't think, how is this person's behavior affecting the people around them? Right, so there, there are times. No joke. I have been counseling people, uh, women who have been, who are being abused by their husbands, and everybody is just telling me, "Well, you got to be really sensitive because this guy went through this bad background." I'm like, I don't care, I don't care. It's not in the sense that I don't care about this person at all, but I care more about the fact that this guy's beating his wife and his kids than what happened to him. You're perpetuating a cycle of violence hmm. by trying to be gracious. The question isn't what would be best for him. The question is. What do his actions merit? What would be a just penalty for what he's done? Not how do we better help this person? There was a study a bunch of inmates asked years ago, uh, violent crimes, violent cr- criminals. First offense, you know, do your time. And they were asked, well, how do you combat returning to prison? Hmm. You know, the constant recidivity rates. Yeah. And so 
they were asked uh, first time, you know, prison time, whatever the justice system deals deals out. Second time, take him out back and shoot him. Mm. That was the inmates' opinion of if you really want to start stop violent crime. Yeah, that's if they if they do it again after their first uh, time in prison, their first sentence, their first paying out to society for what they did. And that's just violence, not necessarily homicide, but just violent criminals right. in general. Uh, take them up back and shoot them. That and was their, their opinion of the only way you're going to actually uh, stop it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And even uh, a lot of people who argue for the death penalty, they make that as a caveat. They say it's not just the violence of the crime, but it's the repetity of crime. Because repetity of crime shows in a person's incorrigibility, meaning that they can't be changed. And if they can't be changed, how many people am I going to allow this person to victimize Mm -hmm. before I say enough, right? And so again, from a Christian perspective, this doesn't mean we're counting out the possibility of redemption. But what we're saying is, is that person's spiritual redemption, is it enough for us to risk whether or not that takes for to risk other people's lives when their redemption happens between them and God and God will deal with them correctly, right? So in other words, when a state executes somebody, there's a reason why in every civilized country, you have chaplains visit people on death row because Christians have always understood it's not that we're opposed to the death penalty, but it's that we believe that everybody deserves a final chance to reconcile with God, right? Jesus died for sinners. Of this, we could be certain. So it's it's a mistake to believe that people who are pro-death penalty are anti-loving, right? And that's another accusation against people who are pro-death penalty to say, well, that's not a very loving stance. Right? So I would you, die for my enemies. I wouldn't kill them. You support the death penalty. Though. I do. And you believe that the Bible supports it as well, not using some of the arguments that you were sort of seemingly saying, these aren't the best arguments, but right. you're, you would support that. Now, I remember <clears throat> listening to John Piper address that. He seemed to present that the Christian life ought to be more of a pacifist perspective, mm-hmm. not just in dealing with punishment, but also dealing with war yeah. and, uh, and combating violence in real time. Yeah. He, he described how if someone were to break into his house, I think it was something similar to this situation. I can't remember exactly the scenario that he painted, but it was an if-then situation where he said, if someone was harming my family, I would just pray for that individual. I would not use force to prevent that because you know, that's Jesus' way. Right. It was the argument. And that sentiment was passed on to cap- the issue of capital punishment. Right. What if that person can be saved? What right. if that person comes to salvation right. in prison? A good example of that would be Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. I don't know if he was given the death penalty, but I know that he was you know, murdered in prison. He was beaten to death. Yeah. But he has a, or his pastor has, I mean, he had a conversion experience. He said he became a Christian. Yeah. He was genuinely sorrowful. I don't know. Nobody knows for sure what's in a person's heart. But And this is, a, this is kind of another argument, in my opinion, for the death penalty. So uh, according to Paul, the only thing that saves somebody is a conviction of their conscience, right? A knowledge that they've done something wrong. So the, uh, the leniency of a culture actually negates the possibility mm. that someone will come to grips with their evil. So if someone facing the gallows, someone facing the death penalty, actually has to come to grips with, am I actually such a bad person that I'm not worthy of life? And once they come to grips with that, they're really close to the gospel of so the thief on the cross, so to speak. Exactly, and uh, you know, I'm facing kind of a, death, and how you know how am I to reconcile where I'm at right now? Exactly, and this is uh, it was kind of a joke, but I, uh, hanging hangs the conscience is, is like one of, so the the idea is that it actually does 
bring up the conscience of man when they come to grips with what they've done and how society is looking at them. Again, the leniency of society would start to convince someone, maybe what I did wasn't that bad, and maybe I don't actually need salvation. Now, that's an interesting argument, but it's not the one that I'm making. Because again- That's more I, of a pragmatic exactly, case anyhow. A pragmatic consequentialist case. The question that we have to answer is, are there crimes in which the punishment ought to be death? That's the question, not what would be the practical effects. I think there are argumentations to be made from a pragmatic stance that there are practical sure. good effects for the death penalty, but that's not why I argue Those are slippery for slope arguments, though. I think so. I think so. And I think it's very dangerous well, to you start your argument on a consequentialist level. How would you respond to a pastor like Piper who suggests that you know this is not the gospel way, this is not the mm-hmm. Christ-like way, uh, holding on to a, even if someone was physically harming my family right in front of me, I would simply pray for them right. because that is the Christian way. Is that a valid biblical perspective uh, that we gather from the life of Christ and the and we, apostles? We have a lot of questions coming in, so maybe if you want to bring it yeah. down to so line with this. I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation, though. So this is coming from what we call Kantian deontological ethics. So what deontological ethics sta- states is that any action that is wrong is necessarily wrong, and it doesn't matter what you're trying to accomplish with it. So the old adage of, would you steal food to feed your family? Yeah, it's moral realism. Exactly, moral realism. Biblically, we don't see that line of ethics being at play within the Bible. In other words, we do see people doing wrong things for correct reasons and being rewarded for it. Uh, many cases I could point out, but my favorite one is in First Samuel chapter 24, where King David eats bread that is reserved specifically for the priests in order to preserve his life and the life of those who are following him. And he, in fact, lies. <laughs> he actually lies to the priest about why he needs it, knowing that if he tells him the truth, this guy is now in a moral, he put, he's, he put this guy in a moral qualm in which he would have to go against his own conscience. Jesus, no less authority than Jesus himself, praises David for doing this, right? So when the disciples are eating on the Sabbath, Jesus points this out as an explanation for why they should be allowed to do what they're doing, because the Sabbath is not made for man, but man for the Sabbath, right? I'm sorry, man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath is made for man. In other words, the law of God is for the preservation and protection of life, not just to simply be something that yokes man and subordinates him. So Mm -hmm. in other words, from this perspective, the idea is if I value the preservation of life, I should actually seek to preserve my family's life at all costs. The unintentional double effect, as Aquinas would put it, the side effect of my action would be the death of my attacker. But that is a good that I'm seeking, which is the safety of my family, who are made in the image of God. So I believe for that reason, as well as, as I said, a retributionary perspective on justice, I think that's why I'm for the death penalty, but I'm always open to debate on this. What what passages would you recommend us to study to sort of hone in our understanding of how God views justice as a retributionary mm. perspective rather than a consequential perspective. Right, absolutely. Just uh, read the first three chapters of Romans, right? When Paul talks about the giving of the law, it's a very retributionary perspective, right? If it was consequentialist, then the reason why God gave the law is to make us better people. But Paul's argumentation is in Romans 3, it comes to its climax when he says, the law was given that all mouths may be stopped and be found guilty before God. Mm. It's retributionary, right? We're guilty by the law, we're not made better by it. Hmm. And that is why Jesus had to die for us in a substitutionary fashion and not mainly as an exemplar for the way that we ought to live. So it's not subjective, but it's for the subjects. Exactly. In other words, the highest ethic is the preservation and the value of human life made in God's image. Mm-hmm. But a subjective, oh, 
I had this experience or that I was raised that I was abused, I was abused as a kid, et cetera, et cetera. That's all subjective. The greatest good that that I can do is to objectively say, yes, but you're guilty. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So anyway, right. again, more we could say on it, but let's get to the questions. Yeah, yeah, very, very fascinating discussion. Thank you, guys. Um, something I love about this show is how quickly you change gears. <laughs> so we have a question from uh, JTP. Is it possible for a Christian to be possessed? I hear this a lot in deliverance ministries is a question. Is it possible for a Christian to be possessed? I'll let you talk about that. Well, <clears throat> I Talking will, of the supernatural. I will yeah. simply, yeah, I will turn to one of my favorite passages that, uh, that doesn't necessarily deal with this directly, but uh, in 1 John 5, he says, He who is born of God does not sin because he who is begotten of God keeps him and the evil one cannot touch him. So the he is born of God is the Christian. He who is begotten of God is Christ. And he says he keeps him. Now that word, he does not sin, uh, some suggested in the tense that it means he doesn't continue in habitual rebellion against God like the Romans first few chapters described the description of humanity. Right. Mm. And so that the evil one cannot touch him. Uh, no one knows the thoughts of man except the spirit that is in him, and we have the spirit of the Lord. So in that sense, um, I would just, even on that passage alone, I would say that I, I do not believe that the the Christian, the born-again Christian, can be demon-possessed. Jesus described that when the house gets cleaned of the demon-possessed individual, if nothing comes back and replaces it, they'll come back tenfold or whatever, the, however the passage describes mm-hmm. it, seeming the, seems to indicate the idea that when God resides in the person's life, <clears throat> only God resides in the person's life. Mm-hmm. No, well said. Nothing to add to it. Great. Very yeah. good. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, JTP, for that question. A question from, uh, <coughs> excuse me, from Frederick. What will the new heaven and earth be like? Is it going to be similar to this world, just without sin, or will it be a completely new world altogether <laughs> with new laws of gravity, new animals, new everything? No eye has Good seen, question. no ear has yeah. heard, no mind has even conceived of what God has planned for those who love him. Wow. Revelation does have some pictures of the new Jerusalem, a new heaven and new earth, but it's just a, no eye has seen, no right. ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of what God has planned for those who love him. So. And there's even an argumentation, by the way, that the reason why John is using so much metaphor and symbolism within that passage is because even he, as he was elevated into heaven, couldn't his mind couldn't even understand what he was seeing and so god used symbols in order to communicate to mm. john what he couldn't understand right so john is just conveying to us the symbols that he saw right the the <clears throat> city coming down adorned as a bride right the various accoutrements that and adornments that are upon the city but all these things are maybe just symbolic right doesn't mean it doesn't have a referent to reality but it means it's just all john's mm. puny little human brain yeah. could take Otherwise, it would explode it. So I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that no, this is not to be confused with the millennial reign. This right. is after where heaven and earth are thrown into the lake of fire, and there's a new exactly. heaven, new earth, and so heaven, heaven, eternal glory is not the same as heaven on earth. Right. If I'm correct in my premillennial <laughs> theology here, your bad eschatology that you're spewing uh, my on the show. Understanding is yeah, that no. when Jesus returns, yeah. there is a, a thousand year reign yeah. of peace. Satan is. Uh, in in chains, mm-hmm. and then he is released. He deceives the nations. I I, can't, I still cannot fathom living with Jesus as King for a thousand years, healing the nations, 
the lion, you know, laying with the lamb and everyone beating their weapons into usable plows and things like that, (laughs) that somehow uh, the evil one is so clever that he will lead the nations astray once again. But is that correct? uh, Well, hey, a third of the angels rebelled against God in heaven. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, we we are rebellious Mm. lot, conscious creatures are. This is why we need each other. Hebrews describes... You know, encourage one another daily, yeah. lest you be dragged away by the deceitfulness of sin. Yeah. Something along those lines, like Absolutely. Hebrews four, I think. Or yeah, Hebrews like, three, verse thirteen. Three, three, yeah. Now, uh, interestingly, about the new heavens and the new earth, what we do see is that there is a reconstitution of the earth and the heavens, and a descending of God's kingdom onto the pl- our plane of existence. How is that going to look? I don't know. Um, I, I was just talking to Adrian about this yesterday. Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the twelve hundreds. He was wrestling with the concepts of God, and there were large groups of Christians that refused to even give any name to God, because they said any name to God denigrates him and his existence because of how perfect he is. So if we call God wise, that's our human ugly word wisdom. It doesn't even come close to understanding what God is really like. And Aquinas said something really cool. He said, while it doesn't fully encapsulate God's perfection, it does hint at it, and therefore, since it's all we can understand, we should rely upon it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like when we look at the earth and, and someone would say, well, heaven is going to be like a reconstituted earth, what they're saying is don't look at the things going on right now and say, this is all we get. It's just a little <clears throat> bit better. Think of it as this is just a symbol of how amazing things are going to be. The mm-hmm. best that you experience on this earth, that's just representative of the kinds of pleasure you're going to experience in heaven but it's nowhere near what it's going to actually be like. So there's nothing wrong with using what we can understand now to inform what we're going to experience later. It's a mistake to believe that it's that this is all there is, right? Mm-hmm. That that heavenly existence is this is all there is, and it's an equal mistake, and this is what Aquinas was going against to say we have no concept of what heavenly existence is going to be. Mm-hmm. So don't even try, right? <laughs> or like or become like these weird monks who sit up on mountaintops and just theorize about what these heavenly things might look like and think that that's godly. No, no, no. The earth is what we got. This life is what we got. Enjoy it. Experience it to its full, but Mm. understand no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I forgot that part. Nor has it entered into the heart of man. Did I say it right? I guess not. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Go back and don't rewind this. (laughs) Just go with it. Just accept that he said it right. (laughs) Very good. Frederick, thank you for that question. Great question. Oh, I said no, mine is conceived. See, it's just a trans... I use a different translation. A wrong translation. I I memorized way too much scripture in the NIV when I first became a believer, unfortunately. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you on that. Frederick, thank you. A question from Nina. Were the Old Testament Israelites ever aware of Satan and the demonic? It seems they were mentioned more in the New Testament than in the Old. That's an interesting question and observation. Well, there was an instance where Saul was being tormented by a spirit Mm -hmm. and was only remedied by the playing of music by um, David. David. So there seems to be some awareness of an evil dimension. Uh, The Witch of Endor uh, was quite panicked when uh, Samuel showed up <laughs> as if there were there was an awareness of some sort of evil existence and um, I mean Isaiah talks about uh, various angelic things so yeah that's a good question I yeah I know that we I know that 
demons, the idea of demons is something really introduced in the New Testament and the word is even foreign to the Old Testament as far as I know. It doesn't, it's yeah. never used, that word, that concept's never used. Yeah, it's really, it's really mysterious because we do see an entity that's referred to as Satan or the Satan. Uh, we were talking about that yesterday as well, Hasatan in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, but you don't really get the idea primarily that he has a lot of minions. There's some passages mm-hmm. like in Isaiah where it describes Satan's fall that there's an insinuation or an intimation that he has followers, especially since Isaiah is specifically referencing the king of Tyre. And obviously the king of Tyre has people subordinate to Mm -hmm. him. So there's intimations that we can make from the Old Testament that there are demons. There's a clear reference to Satan in the Old Testament Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that he is a fallen angel. In Ezekiel, he actually calls him the cherubim that covers. Uh, He says that he was present within the garden. And that helps make sense of Genesis one through uh, Genesis three specifically, where you see Satan in the form of a serpent tempting, tempting Eve. But you're right; the clarification of the demonic is made much more clear within the New Testament. Now, the question is, why would that happen? Now, there's a couple theories. The first one is that it doesn't seem like Israel is weirded out by the demonic by the time Jesus comes. So, in other words. When Jesus is casting out demons, people aren't like, what the heck is this guy doing? You know, like, And they're totally confounded by it. In fact, Jesus makes a reference to exorcists from the Jews that existed at that time. So it's very plausible that while God didn't give specific revelation about these things, this was just experienced by the Jews of that day, and therefore they were able to reason back into the scriptures and say, okay, well, clearly there's more going on. Uh, for instance, in Daniel, Michael says that he was fighting with some sort of a demonic presence mm-hmm. over Persia, yeah. right? So there are intimations of it. So people may have just put two and two together, given their current experience, and then moved past forward from there. But well, and in the Book of Job, I mean, you have Satan directly involved in physical mm-hmm. manifestations. Uh, you know, I have different opinions about it, but mm-hmm. the the fact of the matter is, is that Satan was involved. There was physical illness. There was even destruction of property, uh, violent weather, violent people. And so just from that alone, being one of the oldest books in the Bible, you would think that in the Old Testament times, people would have a general belief that there is an evil one, Mm, that uh, physical problems come about. In fact, when this was a presumption all the time, is that when you saw someone in sin and suffering, it was, or I'm sorry, when you saw someone suffering, it was because of sin. And yes, there may have been an evil spirit involved. You know, you're blind because your parents are sinners. So when they had the... Uh, the 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 paralytic being dropped down through Peter's ceiling in in Luke five, yeah. he what is what did Jesus knows their hearts and what was in their hearts they go what did they see a sinner so instead of Jesus saying I, I you're healed what was the first thing he said he said your sins are forgiven mm. because it was the Pharisees assumption that right. they didn't see a paralytic they saw a sinner right. because there was always physical illness was always the consequences of sin. Mm. So in order for Jesus to prove to them that he actually had the authority to forgive sin, even if that was not true, it was a cultural belief, but not a scriptural one, Right. <clears throat> he said, your sins are forgiven. And so that you know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, get up and walk. Get up right. and pick up your pallet and walk. And-, and that's the main contention of the book of Job as well, right? That Job's friends believe that he's being afflicted because of sin. But what the prologue to Job shows us is that Satan... Uh, however you want to view that incarnation of Satan, is afflicting Job actually because of his righteousness, right? Mm. Uh, Because he doesn't like Job. So uh, interesting for sure. Now, 
personally, the way I look at it as well is I've never met any demon-possessed people. So when you look in the Bible and you see so much demonic activity, there's a theory that some Christians propose, and that is because of the coming of the Son of God, there was a demonic push, if you want to put it that way. So in other words, Satan, understanding that the time of Messiah was upon him, had a massive offensive push <laughs> into the, the nation of Israel. The satanic Joel chapter 2, that God's right. going to pour out his spirit in these times, so the enemy is going to also kind of manifest in profoundly uh, obvious terms. Exactly. So in order to kind of counteract, in his attempt, in order to counteract what the Son of God was doing. There's also theories that the demonic world, even Satan himself, have been sort of bound to a certain limited extent right. after the cross, right. after mm-hmm. the resurrection. Right. And personally, I always have theories that it's like, uh, it, it, when you're dealing with a society that's very superstitious and into the occult, uh, demonic, uh, uh, demonic activity wouldn't be seen as too weird. But in a highly materialistic culture, in other words, our culture is so materialistic, it's so against or contrary to the supernatural, that any supernatural activity, even demonic ones, would actually convince people that there is a supernatural, and it might make them come to God. So uh, Satan's best strategy in a materialistic age, in a scientific age, is actually to not present himself in really crazy Mm -hmm. ways. That's another theory. I I more uh, believe, as you said, that there was a giant push from the demonic entities during the time of Christ, and then after the coming of the church, they rescinded, and then what we see in the book of Revelation is potentially prior to the return of Jesus, there's going to be another massive demonic push, Mm. and then they will be finally quashed by Jesus' return. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Very good. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more question. We've got about four minutes left here. A question from, (laughs) excuse me again. (laughs) See, I told you I was sick potentially. Yeah. Before. Real tough cop. Yes, that's right. <laughs> no. uh, from Adonai, who uh, is a regular on the show, and I understand um, is a pastor out in uh, Africa and has a Bible college out there, if I remember correctly. So welcome. Glad you're there. He has a two-part question. We'll probably only get to one of them. Uh, but his question is on James uh, 2, 1 and 2. What exactly does it mean by not holding the faith of our Lord Jesus with partiality? Do you remember that, that, hmm. that scripture, that passage? Um, what does it mean to not hold... Hold our faith with partiality. So it's James 2, verse 2? Yeah, 1 and 2. James 2, verse 1 and 2. Okay, let me uh, read that passage and we'll get into it. So this is James 2, verse 1. And actually, I think it's actually better if we back up to James 1, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in this good place, and the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my footstool, you have shown, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So um, It sounds like a good clear consequentialist versus retributionist <laughs> perspective uh, in a roundabout way. Way to bring it around full circle. Don't, <laughs> don't judge a person by their outward appearance because mm. they are valuable regardless. You treat right. them But they have as, inherent value. Yeah, they have inherent value. Mm. And don't treat them this way because you want everyone to look nice at church. Right. <laughs> mm. uh, but rather uh, treat them in a gospel sense that they're created in God's image. They are brothers and sisters. And by showing 
favoritism, you're actually buying into the lie. You're you're being like he says, you're being judges. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Some, uh, another interesting thing kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier. The reason why I backed up to uh, showing kindness to orphans and widows is because the prevailing theory of the day is if you're undergoing any type of poverty mm-hmm. or destitution, it's because you've been evil and therefore God is judging you. Mm-hmm. So there was a motive in people to treat people harshly because it's like judging a book by his cover. You're mm-hmm. poor, it's because you've done something evil. If you're not circumcised, right? you're not, you can't how, I mean, really? Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're even letting uncircumcised people in here now? Yeah. And so James's perspective <clears throat> is that's not how we should actually treat people. We should treat people as inherently mm-hmm. valuable, all worthy of the gospel and equal representation before God. And also not to intimate that someone might mm. be undergoing destructive uh, issues in their life as a result of sinful behavior. That's what made the Calvary Chapel movement such a movement. Chuck Smith, when he was doing evangelistic mm. crusades on beaches in California, he it didn't matter. There was, you know, churchianity at the time was always suit and tie. A certain classism had entered into the church, not always, but... He really undermined this as I don't care if you're a hippie and wearing sandals or wearing just shorts and carrying a surfboard or whatever you're doing, yeah. mm-hmm. you're welcome here. And it was a profound change in, in a cultural sense during that time, right in the middle of the yeah. Jesus movement, probably one of the most effective evangelists of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. You never know who God's going to save. All because he followed James too. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for being part of the broadcast today. We'll see you at the same time tomorrow. Peter, Adrian, thank you so much for a great hour we've had. God bless you. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.